This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, so if we haven't met before, uh, let me introduce myself and say hi and and thank you for being here. If it's your first time, uh, you came on a Sunday when we are starting something new, so that's always nice. Uh, We're going to do a series between now and Easter Uh, going through the book of Habakkuk, and the series is called When Life Doesn't Make Sense. When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Um, And maybe you're maybe new to the book of Habakkuk. If you go kind of to the New Testament, uh, Matthew, and take a left and go back, I don't know, about four books or so, uh, you'll wind up at Habakkuk. He's easy to miss. miss. He's a little guy, brief, only a few chapters. Uh, three chapters to the book, uh, so it'll be good for a short series leading up to Easter. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one from under the seat in front of you and turn to page, if I remember, it's, yeah, 457, there it is, 457. Also, if you have any questions during the uh, message today about the text or about something uh, having to do with what we're talking about, you can text them to this number, and uh, then we will get those and seek to answer your questions as best we can on the podcast, which comes out on Wednesday. The sermon podcast comes out today. The conversations podcast comes out on Wednesday, where we talk about uh, whatever you want to talk about from the book. So Habakkuk, why study the book of Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk is a fascinating book, as we're going to quickly see. It's a book where it's an interaction between a prophet named Habakkuk and God, and it really addresses the question, what do you do when life doesn't make sense? And we all face this question at some point. When life doesn't seem to be the way it's supposed to be, and when things don't add up, they don't make sense. And if you're a Christian, it does, that, that question doesn't go away. If you're a Christian, that question is amplified. For if you don't believe in God, if, if sort of what happens in the universe might be uh, just sort of a random uh, random activity, then, you know, life is necessarily going to be chaotic and not going to make sense, and it's easy to live with life not making sense because perhaps in your philosophy it's not necessarily supposed to. But if you believe in God and if you believe that He is good, as affirmed in Scripture, and He is present, then when our circumstances seem to indicate neither, that he is neither good nor present in the midst of our circumstances, when we observe our circumstances and think those thoughts, we're left with a difficult situation. Lord, where are you? Life doesn't make sense. And that is Habakkuk's reality. As the book opens up, that is his reality. Life doesn't make sense. And so we're going to cover verses 1 through 11 today, but I'm going to start with just verses 1 through 4. These are, this is sort of Habakkuk's opening prayer, his opening words to God. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4, this is God's word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, How long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. 
and justice never goes forth. And the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Let's begin with a little bit of background on uh, the book and where this comes from, these verses that we are reading. We don't know much about Habakkuk at all other than he is a prophet. If you look at verse 1, the oracle, which is a message from God, it comes from the word meaning burden. So it's sort of a burden that the Lord gives a prophet to communicate to his people. So it's a message that Habakkuk the prophet saw. There's some, some aspect that this is visionary, so he's having some kind of a visionary experience, and he is reporting on it. And though we don't know much about him, we can place him within a couple of decades. We can place this book within a couple of decades. We know that, or scholars know, that it is written before uh, Babylon invades Jerusalem. So Habakkuk is a prophet in the southern kingdom. There's a northern and southern kingdom at this point, and, and so this is the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and we know that in 587 BC, 587 BC, under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Babylon comes. They besiege the land of uh, circle up and see, uh, besiege uh, Jerusalem, and then they take it. Uh, they destroy the temple. Uh, they destroy much of the city, and they cart off uh, a lot of folks from uh, Jerusalem to live in exile in Babylon. So that happens in 587, and that hasn't happened yet because in the passage we're going to read here in just a minute, the next section, God is telling, uh, God is informing Habakkuk that he is preparing Babylon, that he's preparing them ultimately for what will be the invasion, the, the, the fall of Jerusalem. But Habakkuk writes during a bad time. So the city has not fallen, but things aren't going well. We know that from what we just read. There's violence, there's destruction, there's perverted justice, all of these sorts of things. Um, in 609 BC, a king named Josiah died, and he was a great king. He brought revival to Judah. Uh, he brought back, he found the scripture, brought back the scripture. So they started practicing God's word, God's law. There was a lot of righteousness and justice in Jerusalem. But he died in 609, handed it off. Ultimately, his son becomes king, Jehoiakim, and he leads the people astray. So in 609, this passage, this direction towards being led astray starts. In 587, there invaded. So there's 22 years. Within that 22-year window, things are bad and judgment is coming. That is when God speaks to Habakkuk in this section. God's people are rebellious. They are disregarding his word, and he tells them in the book of Habakkuk that judgment is coming. So the book starts with Habakkuk asking questions. He's really praying, and he's praying a prayer of lament. And it's going to be helpful for some of us, I think, to just see the kinds of things Habakkuk is praying. He's been praying repeatedly. The kinds of things he is praying to God, these are a prayer of complaint or lament. So I want to look at Habakkuk's questions for God, and then I want to look at God's answers. And when Habakkuk is lamenting or raising this complaint to God, he's not, he, he's not complaining about the people, which are clearly in rebellion initially here. And he's not complaining about the king who is leading the people astray, but rather his complaint is towards God himself. His complaint is towards God himself. And he asks two questions. Uh, his lament comes in the form of two questions. Number one, how long? And the second question he's going to ask is why? So first of all, how long? Look at verse 2. 
O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? So this kind of sets the tone for the book. Habakkuk is in a bad situation. The people of God are in a bad situation. And he has been praying and he doesn't see anything happening. So now he is continuing to pray and saying, God, how long is this going to go on? How long until you act in some way? He is lamenting that God is apparently unresponsive, that God doesn't appear to be responding to the cry of the prophet. You can feel the sort of anguish that he's experiencing from the very beginning as he has begged God to bring about a change in Jerusalem because things aren't right. Habakkuk likely could remember how things were not too long ago under the revive, the sort of the renewal under King Josiah, but now they have gotten off track again. And underneath this question, underneath the question, how long, O Lord, is a grievance that he's presenting to the Lord. And the grievance is that, Lord, it seems like you are very slow to respond. It seems like you are very slow to respond. And, and, and Habakkuk is crying out in a sense that, do you not hear? Will you not hear? Habakkuk sees no end in sight. So he's praying to the Lord, this is really bad, God. How long will I pray before anything happens? And he apparently sees no change. He doesn't see any resolve to the problem in front of him. How long shall I cry for help? Sometimes the greatest challenge when we face a trial is not the trial itself, but the, but the sense that there's no end in view to the trial. So sometimes we can handle a difficult situation if we're prepared knowing how long it will last, knowing that there is a brief uh, period, or maybe even a longer period, but a defined period to a trial, uh, that, that, that sort of alleviates the difficulty of a trial. But here, Habakkuk is praying, and there is no end in sight. And some of us are feeling that way about some area, perhaps in our lives today. You don't see resolve. It's easier to walk through something. You can gut it out when you know there's an end. If you go see the doctor and the doctor says, well, you're going to need surgery, and then describes what the recovery's like. Maybe the doctor says, pretty bad recovery at first. You're going to be out of work for two weeks. You're really not going to be very mobile for the first couple of weeks. And then after that, you'll slowly, you'll be able to go back to work, but you're going to kind of have slowly get back. And probably after about three months, you'll feel normal. Or even if the doctor says, after six months, you'll feel normal. Or even if the doctor were to say, after a year, you'll feel normal. At least there's some goal. There's some sense, okay, I'm going to suffer. It's going to be difficult. But at three months, life will be back to normal. But that's rarely how trials work. It doesn't work that way with relationships, for instance. You know, this is a lament. This prayer is a lament. There's a lot of psalms of lament in the book of Psalms where the psalmist is crying out to God, why is this happening? Where are you? How long? All of these sorts of things. And if you read through the psalms, you'll see there's just way more psalms than you might anticipate that are prayers about why is this person opposing me? Why are my enemies doing this? And sometimes you find, the psalmist will say, the enemy is someone who used to be my friend. Have you ever noticed when there's a betrayal 
or a broken relationship. It, it's, there's no like end in sight. Someone doesn't betray you and then say, okay, uh, like I'm going to have a grudge and be angry for about three months, but at, at the three-month mark, we'll be reconciled and everything will be great. If that was the case, you'd go, okay, I can handle, okay, three months, that'll be difficult. I don't understand, but uh, okay, I can make it for three months on my best behavior. But that's not how relationships work. Someone who loses a job, you don't lose a job with the guarantee that after 30 days, of looking, on the 30th day, you will find a new job. If so, you could endure 30 days. You just, you know, spend carefully, and you can make it somehow for 30 days, but it doesn't work that way. If you have a teenager that is in rebellion, there's no, like, end in sight to that. Your teenager doesn't say, well, you know what, I'm going to wander off and, you know, really create a lot of hell for you as my parents and wander from the Lord and reject him. But at the one-year mark, I'm coming back to the Lord, be serving him, loving you, honoring you, honoring God with my whole life. It'll be amazing. But just give me a year. (laughs) doesn't work that way. It's just this sense of how long, Lord, when are you going to do something? When am I going to get a job? When is the relationship going to be repaired? When is my health going to be restored? If we knew that it was limited, we could gut it out. But if we knew that it was limited, it would also remove the element of trust in the Lord. It would remove the element of crying out. Habakkuk's crying out because there is no end in sight. How long? Why don't you act? When there is no end in sight, when it's not a timed trial period, when it's just difficult and you don't see a change, it it causes us to recognize our dependence, to cry out to God. It causes us to pursue Him with our need. It causes us to be aware of our limitations and our great need for His powerful intervention. If we always knew the end of the trial by date, if we always knew exactly how the Lord was going to write the script, it would remove the element of dependent trust and prayer, and in this case, lament and complaint. Habakkuk's received no answer to what he's asking for. What he sees around him is just violence. Lord, verse 2, when I cry to you, there's violence, God. Stop the violence. You you don't save. It just continues on. How long will people be harmed? How long will there be a lack of peace? How long will I ask you to stop the violence with no answer? How long? The second question he asks is why? Look at verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Like, that is, why am I seeing all of this around me without change? Why do you, he says, idly look at wrong? The NIV translates that, why do you tolerate wrong? That, that's what he actually is saying. Why are you tolerating this? God, if you are good, then why don't you do something about this evil? He's asking the question that people have asked throughout the ages. How can a good God be running the universe when I see so much evil around me? Well, what is it that he sees? Verse 3, he sees destruction and violence are before me. There's violence going on. Likely, this is probably people who are in power oppressing weaker people of some sort and treating them uh, with some, they're harming them, treating them with some kind of violence. 
The word violence is used twice in these first two verses and about six times, I think, overall in the book. So there's definitely a society, God's people in Jerusalem, there is a Uh, There is a rampant violence where people are physically harming others um, to get what they want or to take advantage of people to flex their muscle and um, exert their power over other people. Uh, He also says that there is strife and contention. These are legal words. Um, legal words initially in Hebrew. So it probably has something to do with people arguing, people disputing, and maybe even people going to law over it, suing one another, it could be. Worst of all, verse 4, so the law, speaking of God's law, is paralyzed. He's saying that the scripture, the law that we are to live by uh, to enforce justice, it's, it's inactive. It, no one's looking to it. We're not submitting ourselves to your word. So the law and its function to bring justice is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth is what he says. The wicked surround the righteous. So the powerful, the wicked, the evil are pressuring those who are standing righteously and having their way with the righteous, taking advantage of the righteous so that justice goes forth perverted. The only kind of justice we got is perverted perverted justice, is what Habakkuk says. So he's saying with all of this happening, with violence and disputes and the wicked taking advantage of the righteous and a perversion of justice, where are you, God? Why are you just looking at this instead of intervening? and saving us, and acting. Do you hear me? That's what he says. Will you not hear, verse 2? Do you even hear what I'm saying? I feel like I'm talking into the air. God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Habakkuk is saying, life at this moment in this season does not make sense. It does not make sense. Some of us here today ask the very same questions in our lives. Maybe from a personal standpoint, Habakkuk is looking societally, but some of us in the room, if we look at our personal lives, we ask the same thing. Some of us in the room maybe are single, and we would not have imagined at this stage of our life that we would be single, that we would be never married, that we would be divorced, that we would be a widower or a widow. And we say, Lord, this does not make sense. How long will I be in this circumstance? How long? Or maybe you look at your children or you look at your parents and you say, why are we in this situation? Why is this happening? Where are you, Lord? Do you even hear my prayers, my cries, my laments? Why do you look on without acting? Or maybe you look at your work and your finances and say, when is there ever going to be a turn? When am I ever going to be doing something that I feel I can do well at, that someone will pay me well for, that I'll be fulfilled? And when will my finances ever turn? And I'll be at a healthy place where I'm not living paycheck to paycheck or trying to catch up with debt. Maybe it's your health. Lord, how long? How long until you heal me? How long until, how long until I get a diagnosis? 
How long, Lord, will this go on? Why is this happening? Lord, I don't see how I serve you better in this circumstance with this health problem. I only see how I'm limited. How does this do any good? Or maybe you look at society. You know, I don't know if it's the rise of social media, likely it is, or just the internet with us 24-7 in our pocket. But there seems to be more burden and more stress and more weariness with just what's going on in the world and what's going on in the culture. Partially that may be because everything that happens used to be you would just like read it in the newspaper in the morning and then maybe catch the evening news on the television, something like that. But now it's all the time, and it's not only the events, but it's the outrage of everybody about the events or everybody's opinion about the events that just seem to make the burdens of life larger than they used to be as we look at our society. And I, I, as I interact with folks, I've, I've, I just sense a weariness. You know, you can look at what Habakkuk says here, and you can look at, now he's speaking to the covenant people of God. Uh, I'm not speaking about the church here. I'm speaking about our culture, <clears throat> which is not the covenant people of God, distinctly different, our nation versus the church or versus the old covenant people of God. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you can look you can look at our culture and, and pray some of the same things that Habakkuk prays and ask God some of the same questions that Habakkuk asks. <clears throat> Lord, why is there violence? Why are children <clears throat> being shot in our schools? Why are there mass shootings? Why are there more mass shootings than there have ever been, Lord? Why is this? Why, why is there violence towards children? Why is there violence towards children in the womb? Why are innocent children aborted? Why is there this kind of violence? Or take a, something like racism. Just hear from people just the, the weariness, especially from African-American friends, just the weariness of the racism that still surfaces in our culture? Why do young African-American men in particular experience oftentimes unfair treatment under the law? How long, O Lord? How long? Why are one in four women and one in six men sexually abused before adulthood in this culture? How long, Lord? Why? Why do we have to have that experience in our culture. We look at our own lives and we see suffering. We look at our culture, our society. We see suffering. And it's just easy to ask the same two questions that Habakkuk asked, which are, how long, O Lord, and why? And often we don't get answers for what's happening in our lives or what's happening in our culture. We don't often get answers and we just lament. It's appropriate to lament. You know, before we even really get into the book too much, I want to say at the beginning, it's fascinating that God opens, God inspired this book, all the scripture, but God opens it with just uh, a prophet crying out with a complaint that God not only allows that, but God says that's going to be in the scripture, that God is communicating to us through this, that lament both for the church, both for the culture, both for our lives, 
that lament is an appropriate form of communication to God. It's an appropriate form of prayer. And sometimes we don't get an answer. Oftentimes we don't. Habakkuk does get an answer. This is amazing. He gets an answer. And when God answers Habakkuk, his questions, what happens is Habakkuk moves from life doesn't make sense to life absolutely, completely, totally doesn't make sense. When God answers his questions, it's more confusing than before he answered his questions. Look at God's answers to Habakkuk's why and how long, beginning in verse 5. This is God speaking. Look among the nations and see. Look, Habakkuk, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, behold means look, look, Habakkuk, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Whoa. Habakkuk was not expecting that. He says, first of all, God says to him, I am acting in ways that you cannot see. This is true for us. God is doing things we cannot see. God is doing a million things among a million people in a million circumstances that will have some effect on you that you cannot see. We can only see what's right in front of us. Uh, And even that we don't see too well. I mean, I I don't fully know myself, much less you, much less everything that's happening in the world. We are very limited in what we can see. And so that's why he says, look, behold, look at what I'm doing. You can't even see this. But while you are lamenting over here about what's going on in Jerusalem, I'm acting and I'm strengthening the Babylonians. The Assyrians have been the evil people of the day. They have been the power, the evil powers that be. But the Assyrians are losing their power and the Babylonians are coming up in power. And the Babylonians will come and destroy Jerusalem and take God's people captive. And that's what God is up to. That's what God is preparing because God is going to ultimately bring redemption to his people, but there will be judgment first. He will come and they are ignoring him. They are blowing him off. Habakkuk's not, but the people are. They are disregarding his law. They are opposing him in every way. And so he will bring judgment. He will cart them off to Babylon. And guess what? While they're in Babylon, people are going to cry out to God again. 
but this time from a position of weakness, from a position of repentance. And he is going to restore the city. He's going to send them back miraculously. We studied that last year or two years ago, rather, in Nehemiah. He's going to send Nehemiah back, Ezra and Nehemiah. They're going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls. And God is going to restore Jerusalem in the future. And then from that area, he will send his own son, Jesus Christ, who will bring redemption to the world, to the nations, for all who would believe. So God is working his plan of salvation, but Habakkuk could not imagine that he would be raising up evil people to use for his purposes. They're responsible for their evil, but the Lord will use them. He is the Lord over all the nations, and he is acting for the ultimate good of his cherished people, the people of God, and he will even use wicked people to accomplish his purposes. Look at how he describes these people. This has got to be a shocker for Habakkuk. I can't, what are you doing? Where are you? Oh, I'm at work over here, and I am preparing this people. The Chaldeans, no, that, they're the bad people. You can't be preparing the Chaldeans. Oh, yes, they are bitter and hasty, verse 6. They march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. I, God is going to use people that are selfish, that are taking what does not belong to them. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. So he's saying, God, where is your justice? Where is biblical justice? Well, I'm working over here with the Chaldeans, and they're actually going to bring their own brand of cruel and evil justice. So they're going to come and capture God's people. Their horses are swifter than leopards. He uses all these animal comparisons to reveal how fierce they are. They are fast, so their horses are fast. That's what that's saying. They're more fierce than wolves. Uh, their horsemen press on, they come at a distance, and they're like eagles that are swift to devour. God is going to use a devouring people. They all come for violence. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, I cry out violence. Where are you? Well, I'm bringing some people that are going to do violence. It's a shocking word that he has for Habakkuk. They gather their captives like sand. They'll take a nation, they'll take a people. It's just like putting sand in a bucket. You, you, you put forth a king, they scoff. They laugh at rulers. They laugh at a fortress. You've got a walled city, they'll belly laugh at it. They are strong, powerful. They pile up earth and take it. They sweep like the wind and go on. But don't miss this last line God uses in verse 11. They are guilty man, men whose own might is their God. So they don't worship me. They worship their own strength. They worship themselves. But they are guilty, and we're going to find out later, that they will pay for what they do. They freely act. They really are selfish. They really are evil. So they will pay for what they do, but God uses them. So their will and God's will flow together in this circumstance. He wants to bring redemption to his people through judgment. They want to take his people, and so the two ultimately work together for God's ultimate glory and for the people's good, though they won't be able to see that immediately. So he says, hey, Habakkuk, I work in ways that you cannot see, and I work in ways that you cannot understand. If if I were to tell you, you would not believe it, is what he says in verse 5. If I were to tell you, you would not believe what I am doing. God raises up, God casts down. 
So our confidence must be in him, knowing that he acts for the good of his people, even when we can't see it or don't understand it. And we know he acts for the good of his people because the Bible doesn't end with the account of Habakkuk. He, he continues to be faithful to his people, um, even though there, here is a difficult time. Now, there is a ton of mystery here. There's a lot of mystery. We can affirm throughout the Bible the goodness of God. We can affirm throughout the Bible how God redeems his people always, but we cannot fully grasp exactly how he does what he does always. It doesn't always make sense to us. God will use the sins of others in this circumstance. God's going to use the sins of others. Now, he's not, he doesn't originate the sin. The, the Chaldeans, Babylonians, weren't just the wonderful, I mean, that wasn't a band of Sunday school teachers that he put evil into their heart. They were evil folk. They were bad folk, okay? But he uses that. The trials and difficulties of life, he uses it to work in our lives and to work in his church. And while we don't embrace injustice, we're not looking for injustice, we're not celebrating injustice, the reality is God will even use injustice for the good of the church and for the good of our lives at various times. God will use persecution for our good and for his glory, for good of the church, for the good of our lives. God will use suffering and difficulty of all different kinds because he is Lord over all. Whatever you're facing today, God is committed to your good. He is fiercely committed to your good. He is trustworthy. The point of this is he is at work in ways that we cannot see, and he often doesn't let us know because we couldn't even fathom it. If he did tell us, we would say, well, that's beyond me. How in the world are you going to do that? He is in control even when we don't understand. You know, sometimes we just want to get like Habakkuk. We want to get an interview with God. If God could just explain to me what he's doing in this situation, why he's not answering my prayer, then I could trust him. I think this tel text tells us if God explained to you what he's doing, you wouldn't understand it. And it might just create greater unrest as it's going to for Habakkuk. He is to be trusted based on the fact that he is good and he is trustworthy and we can't fathom what he's doing. He doesn't give us, he gives Habakkuk answers, but he doesn't give us answers oftentimes. When we cry out, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you not doing that? He doesn't give us an explanation, but here's what he gives us. He gives us something better than an explanation of why this happened or why that happened or why this didn't happen or why that didn't happen. He gives us something better than an explanation. What God gives us as ultimate assurance of his goodness, ultimate assurance of his faithfulness is the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That's what he leaves with us. That's the center of the Bible. That is the centerpiece of the whole story. That's what all of this is moving towards. And that's what he leaves with us. In Habakkuk's day, God used evil people as a means to accomplish his ultimate good for his people. Later, he will use evil people to crucify Jesus to accomplish his good for his people. Habakkuk asked God, where are you and why don't you do something about this injustice? Surely that's the exact same questions 
that the disciples were asking when Jesus is arrested and taken away and beaten and crucified. We thought he was the king. We thought he was bringing the kingdom. We thought he was the long-anticipated, expected one. God, do you not see this? He's been arrested. God, do you not notice this? He's being crucified. God, he's dying on a cross. Are you going to intervene? Are you going to rescue him? Are you going to stop this? How can this be? You couldn't use this kind of evil. God, have you abandoned him? Jesus himself on the cross prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm that he quotes from the cross. Cross. It seems like God is idly looking on. That's verse 2 of Habakkuk here. God, how long will I cry for help? Um, how long will I cry violence and you will not save? I'm sorry, verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you tolerate evil? Surely that must have been the sentiment. God, why are you allowing the king, the teacher, the son of God, why are you allowing him to be crucified? That cannot be that you would use that evil. Why are you abandoning us as his followers? Why are you abandoning him? Yet God was at work through the work of evil people to crucify his son, to rescue his people, to bring good. He was not abandoning us. He was making a way for us. For Jesus dies taking our sins upon himself. And he's buried and he's raised on the third day to defeat darkness, to defeat the enemy, to defeat our sins, to push back darkness, to make all things new. And the way that God makes all things new is through the suffering of his son to defeat the darkness. And no matter what our circumstances are today, we can take the ultimate comfort in the fact that even though it may be dark, God works good out of the darkness. God redeems out of the darkness. God works for our good to make us more like Jesus through circumstances that we don't understand, that we would cry out, where are you, oh God? God does his greatest saving work when the natural question was, where are you and why is your son being crucified? Frequently, people will share the metaphor of life. I, I like this metaphor of life is like, for the Christian, is like a tapestry. And it's like a tapestry that we can only see the underside. We look up and we can only see the underside of it. And when we look at the underside of the tapestry, it looks like a lot of knots and a lot of frayed string or, uh, what, you know, thread a lot of f- f- uh, just kind of frayed thread and like a big chaotic, if you've ever seen it, just a chaotic mess. And we say, where's God in all that mess? It looks knotted up and frayed, and it looks like it has no design. It doesn't look beautiful. But if you see the tapestry from the other side, looking down on it from God's side, what you realize is that he is weaving something beautiful. From our perspective, it looks like a mess, but from his perspective, it is beautiful. It is glorious. It has design. It has purpose. It has beauty. It even has beauty that he takes all the threads of our lives and he weaves them together, the good, the bad, the difficult, the lonely, the hopeless, the unexplainable, the joyful, all the experiences are woven together, and all of his experiences are woven together in the church as well. God takes the church at, at some places in the 
world, the church is under severe persecution. At other places in the world, the church is experiencing freedom and great power by the work of the Holy Spirit, even revival in places. So even the tapestry of God's church, even the tapestry of the kingdom of God today, it at points looks like a mess from our vantage point. But from God's, he is doing a work. He's doing a work, and we will only see the tapestry. Today we see it by faith. We say, on the flip side of that, I'm confident it's beautiful because of the cross and resurrection and because of the promises of God and because of his faithfulness. I'm sure on the other side it's beautiful. And by faith, we'll get to the other side and see And Jesus will return, and he will usher in a new heavens and new earth, and we will see the tapestry in all its glory, what God has been preparing for us, what God is at work doing. It's beyond. If I told you, you wouldn't understand, God says here. But he's at work. He's weaving a masterpiece that's only visible from his side that we'll only see in eternity. Now, I don't want to give the whole book away, but you can read it on your own. I'd encourage you to. Uh, Habakkuk doesn't end with how long, O Lord. He gets a report that it's going to be bad, but he ends chapter 3. I just want to, we we do need to rest in this. We do need to sort of sit in the reality that we do ask why, we do ask how long, we do lament. But I do want to just read the end because Habakkuk's not going to stay there. And if that's where you are today, I want to hold this promise out to you of what God wants to do in your life as well. Verse 17 of chapter 3, this is how Habakkuk ends his book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no more food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, okay, he's saying, if everything's taken away, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He moves from how long, O Lord, and why to yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take my joy. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is committed to working for our salvation, our holiness conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's why he sent his son. In the darkest hour, Jesus died for our sins and rose to defeat sin to give us new life. And that is our comfort and strength during our dark times that he might sustain us. So if you're asking why and how long, O Lord, I want to turn now. We're going to turn and sing. I want to turn our hearts towards just leaving that with the Lord, to just casting that over on the Lord. I hope you see anything that this passage, it gives you permission to, before the Lord, not to charge the Lord's character, but to cry out with questions, certainly to question, Lord, what's going on. It not only gives permission for that, it endorses that. And says that ultimately pouring our heart out before the Lord and trusting him, that's the way that our perspective will be changed. As we cry out to him and as we look to the cross and resurrection, our eyes will be changed to ultimately say, yet I will rejoice in him. Let's let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.